Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the Word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening, and may God bless you abundantly. We've been going through the sermon series on the, on the end times. Now, next week, we are not going to be... I'm going back and forth next week because next week we are having children family service. Now, what that is, is we are going to have child care. The droplets are going to still meet, but three and under are still meeting. And so anybody over three years old is going to be meeting in here. And the purpose of that is because we believe that church was always intended for the family to come together and worship God collectively, learn collectively. In fact, Sunday school is a really new thing. You know where Sunday school came from? It was when they used to have no child labor laws. And so the kids could not actually come to go to school because they were working. And so they had Sunday school to teach our children. But now that we have labor laws, unfortunately, um, children... But now, now, guys, as, as family, we need to get back to the fact that we are in charge of raising our children, to worshiping with our children, to teaching our children. And so we're going to be doing this every fifth Saturday, Sunday of the month, where we, we do this family worship. And hopefully, I'm going to see, I've learned within church, you can't just throw people into the fire. You have to slowly warm them up. And so I'm just going to let you know what I'm doing to you. Um, unconscious, subconsciously trying to manipulate you to receive the truth of the fact that we're going to have children in our worship eventually all times. But I don't want to overwhelm you. So we're going to do it once every fifth Sunday. And, and I'm not going to, so I'm, I'm struggling with this because next week is heaven and earth. The new heaven, new earth. So I'm trying to decide, do I want to preach that with the kids in the room? I mean, it's not bad. Everything's great. So it's awesome. But so we'll decide. But next week, maybe continue the sermon series. But this week, is the millennial kingdom. Now, remember, the millennial kingdom is the literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Thousand years on his throne. He comes back on his throne. Now, remember, the first week we talked about this end times, first week of the end times sermon series, we looked at three, three ideas or three beliefs around the eschatology of the end times, three ideas around the millennial kingdom. The first was post-millennialist. Post-millennialist believe that when Christ came the first time and he established his church, that this began the millennial kingdom. It's not a literal thousand years. It's just the rule and reign of Jesus Christ on the earth through his church. And so they believe that the world is going to get better and better and better and better and better until finally Jesus comes back. And it's going to get better because the gospel is going to advance and is going to stretch to the ends of the age. And then Jesus is going to come back, judge the wicked, reward the righteous, and establish the new heaven, new earth. That's post-millennialism. Then we have amillennials or amillennialist view. They believe kind of the same thing. They believe that, the, once again, no literal thousand years, no literal kingdom. It's the church age. Now, they 
believe, though, it's not going to get better and better and better and better. They believe it's going to get worse. And then Jesus is going to come back and once again establish a new heaven and new earth. Now, the view that we hold, or at least I hold, I don't know what y'all hold, but I hold this view, and I've been teaching from this view. It's the premillennialist view. This is everything we've been learning through the end times events. Is there's the age of the church. Jesus comes back, dies on the cross, establishes church, the age of the church, and then the rapture, then the tribulation, seven years of tribulation known as Jacob's trouble. Then Jesus comes back, and then he establishes the literal thousand years where he reigns on his throne, and then it goes into the new heaven, new earth, after the great white throne of judgment. This is the view I hold. And the reason why I hold this view and teach from this view is because this is the only view that allows us to have proper Bible study methods in interpreting the scriptures, that the literal sense, it's the literal sense uh, interpretation. All right, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense, right? And there's a danger. There's a danger with over-spiritualizing the Bible, over-allegorizing the Bible and say, well, this is, over, this is spiritual because what can it cre- create is a liberal version of interpretation, of liberal theology of where the scriptures really have no meaning. There's spiritual troops, truths behind it all. And so now the interpreter is up, it's up to, the interpretation is up to the interpreter. And so now we have this whole train of thought where, well, Adam really didn't exist. When God said Adam and Eve was created, he really meant that mankind was created. Or, or God didn't really flood the earth. It was kind of just this symbolism of whatever. Then God didn't really put Jonah in the belly of the fish. It's just kind of a symbolism for a belly. It was just kind of a spiritualized. Jesus is, even though Jesus affirms that he believed, that Jesus believed that Jonah was in the whale or the fish. The worst one I've ever heard I heard a pastor once stand up and talking about the miracle of Jesus and the fish. He, you know, he, he multiplied the fish and the loaves. Remember that story? Okay. So I hear this pastor get up and say, look, I have no problem with the miracle being the miracle, but here's another option is that maybe when Jesus gave thanks to God and lifted up the bread, he gave thanks to God, and what he did is he showed an act of generosity which encouraged everybody else to have an act of generosity. And so everybody else saw Jesus giving bread, and they're like, oh, I've got bread in my bag. Here's bread. I've got fish in my bag. I've got fish in my sock. Here, take my fish. It's just everybody started passing around acts of generosity towards one another. And so Jesus began the miracle by generosity, and everybody else became generous and gave what they had. Guys, when, when I read that story, the reason that story is in the Bible is because it was an absolute miracle of Jesus Christ. And in fact, later on, Jesus looks at that miracle and when the disciples are like, man, we're, 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 we're scared, we're on the boat and we have no lunch. And Jesus is like, y'all, I just fed 5,000. There's only 12 of you fools. What are you worried about? And so they, they, Jesus refers back to it. And so, guys, we need to, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. If we do not interpret the Bible in the literal sense, the Bible can become nonsense. That work? Premillennialist. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. That was just my little rant. But a lot to talk about. A lot that goes on in the millennial kingdom. If you're new here, there are some things we're going to be talking about this morning that I promise you we do not normally talk about in this church. So it's going to be fun for you. It's just a little teaser. 
uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, we're going to be talking about the, the reign of Christ. This is, let's just read this real quick. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till a thousand years are finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw, the, I saw thrones and, on them sat, uh, and, and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the, world, the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of the beast on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the, rest of, uh, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who is a part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now when the thousand years were expired, Satan will be released from his prison. So six Times in the seven verses, 1,000 years is mentioned. One th the literal 1,000 years of the reign of Christ is mentioned. So let's look at the 1,000 years. What is going on in the 1,000 years? Now, remember last week we set this theme. We had all the nations coming together. Satan, the Antichrist, goes out to seize all the nations, brings all the nations to the valley of Hinnom, okay, right, the, or the, the plain of, uh, of Esterlon, and this is the battle of Armageddon. They come together to try to defeat Jesus. They try to beat Jesus. It's the war. It's World War III. It's the end. And so then we get, so then Revelation 19, this is what we saw. We saw, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Remember, there's two suppers. There's the wedding feast, and then there's the supper of the great God. Now, you either part of the bride of Christ who gets to be the bride at the wedding feast, or you in rebellion against God, and you get to be the main course at the supper of God. Okay? Two feasts. This is what happens to the second feast, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So there is World War III happening. Everybody comes together to try to defeat Jesus, to try to take Jesus out. They're gathered in the place of Megiddo, the Armageddon, and this is what happens. Jesus comes back, and it says, Then the beast was captured, and with him was the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Okay, so stop here. The Antichrist and the false prophet are now thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we're going to talk about what the lake of fire is in a second, but now they're out of the picture. But it says the rest, all the people living that came against Jesus, the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Remember, no freedom moment, okay? No brave heart. You're not going to be William Wallace in this moment. Jesus speaks and everybody dies. He, it says that he died where the birds ate their flesh and there was a 200 miles of blood that flowed four feet high. It was a gruesome scene and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, so Jesus comes, destroys all those who oppose him at Armageddon, 
throws the Antichrist and the false prophets, the first thing that Jesus does in the millennial kingdom is he establishes world peace. He establishes peace. In fact, Isaiah says it this way. Then he shall judge between the nations and rebuke man, many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against, uh, against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So there's going to be perfect world peace. Y'all, could you imagine this? Like, no more war. Like, we, we've been striving, striving for world peace ever since we started this whole experiment, uh, uh, you know, creation. <laughs> like, we have been trying to have world peace, but we, the problem is, is we have ignored and we've been striving for world peace apart from the Prince of Peace. We've abandoned the Prince of Peace, but we're striving for peace. We tried every method, every means. Well, you know, it's, it's more government. That's going to bring peace. It's less government. That's going to bring peace. It's anarchy. That's going to bring peace. It's, it's chaos. It's, it's socialism. It's communism. It's, it's, it's government. It's, it's, it's it, whatever. It's all going to bring. No, nothing brings peace when you reject the Prince of Peace. But Jesus is going to come, establish, because he's going to destroy all war, all those who oppose him. It says you're going to take your weapons and beat them into plowshares. You're going to take all your AKs. I know some of y'all stockpiling. You take all your AKs, all your Glocks, all your weapons, and you are going to beat them down into shovels. You're going to have shovel, and you're going to make lawn art out of them. They're going to be pretty little declarations. You know, our kids are going to ride on our tanks, okay? They're going to be rides, Carnival rides. Like right now, we spend $1.9 trillion on the military worldwide. $1.9 trillion. All of that will not be necessary anymore. Complete peace. The second thing that Jesus does is an angel comes down with a key and chains, and he locks Satan in the abyss or the bottomless pit. Okay, we, saw the, we saw an angel come down and, and unlock the bottomless pit or the abyss to allow demons out. Now they come down with chains and keep Jesus in to the bottomless pit. Now, now here's the question. Okay? So this is where, if you're new here, I'm sure you came to hear this, but we're going to talk about hell this morning. Okay? <laughs> I know that's why y'all came. Everybody came. They're like, I hope he talks about hell. Um, but... The thing about hell is, is that so often we, we have this view, okay, there's two places, right? Heaven and hell. That's our view, heaven and hell. There's the only two places. Now, there's nothing wrong with that view, but the problem is, is that unless we have a proper understanding and doctrine of hell, we get to a, ver- a verse like this or a section like this, and it becomes very confusing. The Antichrist is thrown into the lake of fire, but then Satan's thrown into the bottomless pit, and what's the abyss, and what's this, and what's that? You know, where are they all going? Are they all in the same place? Is it just hell? And so we're going to look this morning. We're going to break apart the doctrine of hell. There are three words in the Bible for hell. There, there are three compartments of hell. Okay, three compartments. Now, this is not Dante's Inferno. This is uh, what the Bible says about the three compartments, okay? So three compartments of hell. The first word is in the Old Testament is the word used, Sheol. Okay? The word Sheol. This basically in the Old Testament, this is where everybody died. Righteous and unrighteous, they all went to Sheol. It's better translated, the grave. Okay? All righteous, all unrighteous went to the grave. Now, we know that the righteous went there, because even David in Psalm 16, he says, God, please do not abandon my spirit or my soul into Sheol. And David was a righteous man. The Bible paints him as a righteous man. We know nothing about Sheol other than the fact that the both righteous and unrighteous go in the sense that the Old Testament does not expound on it. But then Jesus comes along in the New Testament. 
And Jesus uses a different word to describe Sheol. It's the Greek word of Sheol, and he uses the word Hades. The same word, Hebrew for Sheol, Greek for Hades, and Jesus uses this word, and he gives us an understanding of what this is like. In fact, in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gates, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. It was, it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Okay, so now we have this place of Sheol, place of Hades, it says that the rich man and the poor man, they both die, and they go to this place where they can see each other, but the first place that we notice is in Hades, or Sheol, is this place called Torments. It's a place of torment. Now, what we learn about this place within this context, in this scripture, is that number one, it's a place of pain. We learn that he's, we're going to learn later, he's in pain because there's fire. He's burning. The second thing we learn is that there is memory, okay? So it's not going to be a place where you're going to go and it's going to be like, I don't know who I am. Where, how did I get here? Who am I? You're going to remember there's going to be consciousness. It says he remembers the, the poor man, and he also remembers his life on earth. He remembers his brothers who are still alive. He remembers what they do and what they've done and how he lived. So there's memory. But there's also the third thing is that there's separation, not only from God, but from all those who die in righteousness to wherever this poor man went. In fact, Luke chapter 16 says it this way. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all of this, between us, uh, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those who want to pass from you to us cannot. Okay, so the next thing we learn is that between torments and wherever the rich man is, or the poor man is, is a great gulf where you can see each other, it's in the same place, Sheol, Hades, but there's a great gulf. The second place of Hades is comfort. The place of Abraham's bosom is the place of paradise because paradise is not the same as heaven. In fact, the Bible uses it as a place within Sheol. It's a place of comfort. So now what we see is that with all the saints and prophets of Old Testament, they went to the place of comfort within Sheol. They went to a place not in torment, but in a place where they are comforted within paradise, within Sheol, or within Hades. Now, here's the question. You're like, well, does that mean that, that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David are still in Sheol in this place of comfort they're not with God they are now but remember before Jesus these people they were not qualified to stand in the presence of God because they still had sin over their life their sins were not paid for the atonement was not shed the blood of the perfect lamb what did not die this is why when Jesus dies on the cross with the prisoner next to him, he says, today you will be with me, not in heaven, but in paradise. Now, here's the thing. Does that mean that Jesus went to Hades? One of the 
declarations in the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus, in Christ, Jesus Christ, His Holy Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Some of y'all's translations may say he ascended to hell. And on the third day, he rose again. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. We have heard that before. And many people say, well, does that mean that Jesus went to hell? He went to the place of torments? He went to the place where he's being punished? Why, why did Jesus go to hell? What did Peter say? Peter says, sorry. Peter says this. For Christ also suffered once and for all for our sins, for the unjust, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God by being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Listen, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. When Jesus died, he went to this place of Hades. He went to the place of comfort. He went to the place of paradise, not as a prisoner, but his blood, his sacrifice paid the price for all the Old Testament saints, all those who died before Jesus. His blood paid the sacrifice to get them out of paradise and bring them with him in heaven. Paul says to be absent in the flesh is to be present with God. Paradise is empty. Comforts is empty. When you die, you do not go rest in Abraham's bosom unless you want to because he'll be in heaven with you. Does that make sense? Some of y'all missed that joke, okay? It's optional now, okay? When you die, you will not be in paradise. You'll not be in Sheol. You'll not be in comfort. You will be with Jesus Christ in heaven. So that's the first compartment of hell. Uh, hell. The second compartment is a place that's only used once in the Bible. It's the place of Tartarus. Tartarus is the place where all the demons, apparently there are demons who were so heinous and so wicked that God said, you will not roam the earth with Satan and his, his legions. You are so wicked. I believe that the demons that were found in Noah's time that tried to co-inhabit with the women of the earth, and God's like, uh-uh, ain't happening, locks them up in this place of Tartarus until the day of the Lord. In fact, Second Peter says that, for God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell. Our English word says hell. The Greek here is Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And then Jude chapter 1 verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, uh, domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the great day of God. So you have Tartarus. Our translations say hell. A lot of times you'll see it translated or you'll see this idea of the abyss. So when it says that the demons were in the abyss and the angel unlocked the abyss, the angels unlocked Tartarus so that the demons can come out and flee. The ones that have been so heinous locked up in there. In fact, the demons knew there was a place of Tartarus because they told Jesus when he's casting the demons out of the man, remember what he said? He says, what is your name? He says, I am legion because we are many have entered into him. And he says, and they begged Jesus that he would not command them to go into the abyss. Tartarus. Don't send us to this place of prison. Don't send us to the place where the angels, the demons have been locked up for the beginning. We just let us roam. And so Jesus cast them into the pigs. Okay? So Tartarus. Yeah. Think of torment, though, 
so there's this place of Hades, hell. She'll think of torments as jail. Tartarus is where the, the prisoner, the demons are locked up. Think of torments as jail. Because when you kill somebody, you don't go to prison. You go where? To jail. Until what? You judge the trial. So until you stand before the judge, you will go to jail. And so think of torments as jail. We're going to see the trial eventually. But right now, torments is jail. But the final place of hell, okay? Stay with me. Revelation 20, verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them, and the death in Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The third compartment of hell is the lake of fire. It's where the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown. Right now, the lake of fire is empty because Christ hasn't come back yet. It's reserved for Satan and his followers. Now, some of y'all have heard of this word that Jesus uses for hell, lake of fire. It's the word Gehenna, right? Gehenna. It's actually a real place, the Valley of Hinnom. Now, so there's a lot of confusion around the Valley of Hinnom because there's a man on the, that came that wrote a book called Love Wins, Rob Bell, and he takes this phrase, Gehenna, or this word Gehenna, in the Valley of Hinnom, and he says it, it means trash dump. So when Jesus uses the phrase Gehenna, he's referring to a trash dump, which means that in order to have a healthy life, happy life, God wants you to be truly, uh, truly have a fulfilled life. And yes, that's true. In Christ, we have life. I'm not denying that. In Christ, we have life. But he says, the, the problem is, is when you walk in sin, what you are doing is you are making a trash dump out of your life. So Jesus doesn't say you're going to Gehenna, an eternal lake of fire, of torment for eternity. He's saying don't make a trash dump out of your life, guys. Don't make a trash dump. Don't make a trash dump. Because the problem with this is it's historically, theologically, and grammatically incorrect. The Gehenna, Valley of Hinnom, was not a trash dump until later on. And it was not even known specifically for as a trash dump. The Valley of Hinnom was known as a place where the Canaanites used to worship Molech and Baal. They used to worship Molech and Baal, and a part of their worship was to lay at the feet of this statue, Molech, that had a fire going constantly, day and day and night. And they would take their children, their living children, and they would lift it up before Molech, and they would drop their children alive in this fire to be burned alive as a sacrifice to Molech. That was a place where the fire burned day and night in Gehenna. And Jesus is referring to using this phrase, Gehenna, as a lake of fire to point to something that they all knew was happening. They all knew this place. And he says, there's this lake of fire. Okay, so these are the three compartments. Y'all with me? Now you know about hell, all right? Somebody says, you, you know, when you go to hell, where do you go? Now you know, okay? It's not Tartarus. It's where? Not yet. You don't go to Lake of Fire yet. Torments. Like, that doesn't make sense. Anyways, you know about hell now. You're, you're, you're educated. So, the first thing Jesus does is he locks Satan, not in Tartarus, or he locks Jesus, Satan in Tartarus for a thousand years. The second thing he does is he resurrects the saints. Okay, he resurrects those who have died in the cross. Remember, we just read Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 through 6. Um, I don't think we need to read it again. We read that. Basically, all the resurrected saints are resurrected. Now, this is not the church, 
okay? This is not the church. The church is resurrected at the rapture. This is all those who have made it through the seven years tribulation. They came to faith. They saw Nana and Pop Pop. They, they were raptured. They're like, where's Nana and Pop Pop? Where's, where's Mama? Where's Daddy? I know my friends who are all Christians. They come to the church. Nobody's here except for a few pastors and a few other people. Um, and they become Christian because they realized they missed it. They knew. They heard and they realized they missed it. They became a believer. But the problem is Antichrist is still on the scene and he has no tolerance for believers. And he slaughters all these believers. He martyrs so many believers. And they, these are the believers in the fifth seal that said, how long, O Lord, till you make judgment on me? And so they are resurrected here when Jesus comes back. So at this point, everybody who is in Christ is either resurrected in flesh or they have made it through the tribulation alive and they enter into the kingdom. And so you're going to, we are going to rule with Christ for a thousand years. So if you're a part of the church and you're, you're raptured, you're resurrected in body, what are you going to be doing for the thousand years? You're going to be his priest. Like he's, there's going to be a new temple with Jesus as Lord, and you get to perform priestly duties. You will be serving Jesus for a thousand years. Something like, really? Serving? I'm going to be his servant? Because I don't know if you've ever served Jesus on this earth. If you've ever loved somebody unconditionally, you've ever gone out and, and gave, gave resources to the poor, helped somebody through something. You guys, the only thing that drives me crazy in, in ministry and serving Jesus is not the serving Jesus part. It's people. It's sin. It's wickedness in our, in our flesh. It's having to deal with emotions. I don't do emotions well. I've got three girls in my house. And, and, and that's what drives me crazy. But I love serving Jesus. And if you've ever done it, if you ever served Jesus, it's the greatest feeling in the world because you have life, you have excitement, you have joy. You get to experience that without the sin, without the pain, without the people messing you up. You get to enjoy serving Jesus for a thousand years. But then after a thousand years as priest, Satan is released. Now Satan, after a thousand years, sorry, man, this thing's acting up. Now the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released in the prisons and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to enter them together for, to battle, or to, to gather them together for battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up uh, on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. This is Jerusalem, the new the Jerusalem and Jesus and the saints. The fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who was deceived was cast into the lake of fire, brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night. Okay, so Satan is released. Now this Gog and Magog, hear this, this is not the same Gog and Magog of Ezekiel. This is just describing the fact that Satan is going to go out and deceive many people and bring them to battle against Jesus and his saints. So what's happening here? Who are these people that are being deceived? So you got to remember, all that enters into the millennial kingdom are the righteous, the ones who have resurrected body, and the ones who live through, the through this tribulation don't die, and they believe in Jesus Christ. They will enter into the millennial kingdom. The Bible also says that we'll have longevity of life. It's like going back to the Garden of Eden. Isaiah says, no more shall the infant from, uh, from there live but a few days, nor the old man who has not been fulfilled his days, uh, for the child shall die 100 years old. It says that in the end, 
longevity of life that 100 years old will be infancy. Like you're just getting started at 100. It's like the Garden of Eden all over again. The, 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 the eating from the tree of life. And it says that, it says that when Christ comes back, so what, what are we going to be doing? It says when Christ comes back, he's going to establish this. And when he, we are going to enjoy Christ and have babies if you're not glorified in body. If you come through the resurrection, you are just going to have babies and babies. It's going to be peace. It's going to be peace on earth. It's going to be enjoyable. The, na- the natural system, it says lion will lay down with the lamb, just like the Garden of Eden. Everything is going to be beautiful. You're going to have babies and babies and great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-grandchildren. You ain't living and dying at 80. You're going to be enjoying Christ and procreating and filling the earth. Hopefully none of y'all, because we'll be raptured and glorified. We'll be priests. But if not, you'll enjoy it. Just not the seven years of tribulation. But anyways, so here's the thing. These great, 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 great grandchildren have not been tested. All they know is Jesus and his lordship. All they know is Jesus and his kingdom. And when Satan comes out and is released, Satan comes out and he puts them to the test and says, why is Jesus king? Why aren't you king? Who's he to tell you what to do? Who's he to tell you how you should live? Why is he ruler? Who are these priests that are above you that are judging with Jesus? Who are these fools? And he gathers them together. And once again, no war, no battle, not like Braveheart. God's just like, I'm done with this. Fire from heaven, destroyed. And it says, now Satan is not thrown in Tartarus. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, Gehenna, where he will be for the rest of eternity. So I've said this before. You guys got to remember this. Satan is not the king of hell. Satan is not the god of hell. He's not the lord of hell. He's not the warden of hell. He's not in control of hell at all. Satan, hell was created by God, kept by God, and sustained by God for Satan and his demons. Satan will not be king like the cartoon show where he's sitting on his throne and all these little minions are running around him. That's not Satan. He will be locked up as a prisoner just like the rest. So let's go back real quick when Satan is released. The question that most people ask is why? Were you guys wondering that? Satan has been bound for a thousand years. Why didn't Jesus just throw him into Gehenna? Why let him go? Like what's the play here? Like, why let them deceive again? Everything's been beautiful, peace. Why let Satan go? Now, the truth is the Bible doesn't explain this, so this is all speculation. This is my own speculation based off of what I know of Scripture and what I know of the Word. So take this for what you want. But this is what I see in Scripture. God has allowed mankind to be tempted and tested under every circumstance, environment, government. In the garden, the goodness of God, one rule, don't eat. After Noah saw the power of God in the flood, just enjoy and have babies start over. 
Abraham under the covenant of the unconditional covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Moses with the the, the tabernacle and with Moses with the Ten Commandments and all the commandments at at the Mount Sinai that God gave them to be Lord over them, to lead them through the desert, through the Shekinah glory. God God used judges to guide over them. God used a real king, David and Saul, Samuel, all these kings, Samuel, but all these kings over them. God has taken other nations and put them over Israel. So now they're under these other nation's thumb he's used rome he's used the power even with god's people he gave them the church and the beauty of the church and the holy spirit we've been under every environment under every circumstance every government and now we have complete peace complete rule with jesus christ as lord for a thousand years and when satan gives us a different option we choose to rebel we choose to reject We choose to walk away. Why? Because if the history of mankind has shown us anything, it is that mankind is wicked in nature. We are rebellious in nature. We want to be our own God by nature. We desire to be our Lord. Has nothing to do with circumstances. Has nothing to do with your environment. Has everything to do with from the garden to the millennial kingdom. We want to be God. And it is only Christ that can change you and transform you and regeneration, the regeneration of the Spirit can change you and transform you. But other than that, in our flesh, we are wicked. And yet, so many of us, we use circumstances in our environment as an excuse of why we do what we do and why we are the way that we are. Well, I wouldn't have done what I did if they didn't say what I, they said to me. I would be a better wife if my husband, come on, y'all, come on, somebody, if my husband was better, was actually living for God, was actually striving after God. If he was a better husband, I would be a better wife. If my kids weren't such hellions, I wouldn't be so stressed out. I'd be more peaceful if my kids were more respectful and, 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 and actually listened to me. If you came home to what I come home to, you would be stressed out too. If I had a better job, then I would be happier. If I had more money, then I'd be a better giver. If this didn't happen to me when I was a kid, my parents jacked me all up when I was a kid. And if this didn't happen, if this didn't take place, if this didn't go on in my life, then I would not be and do what I do. Because I am by no means diminishing what some of y'all went through. Because I know, I know your stories. I know your testimony. And I know that some of y'all went through some things that can only be described as coming from the pit of hell. And some of y'all are going through marriages, and let's just be honest, you were self-described them as sucky. They're horrible. And it's painful. But listen to me. You do... Jeez. You do not sin because of your circumstances and your environment. You sin because you in your flesh are wicked. You are rebellious in nature. And we use our circumstances and our environment as a justification, as a means to justify our engaging and indulging in our flesh. Does that make sense? It's like this. If Savannah, which happens often, she comes home and brings a pile of cookies in the middle of the week. If it's not on Sunday, it ain't blessed, okay? It's not holy. They are, they are sinful, cookies, rebellious. Now, I know my flesh. I know I have no willpower. I know I have an eating disorder. I know it's unhealthy for me. 
but I will eat every one of those cookies. And so when I do eat every one of those, she brought brownies home yesterday, and I ate every one of them, okay? I'm not going to lie. I have no self-control, and I get that about me, but here's what happens. When she does that, I don't say, man, my flesh is weak. I just, I, I know it's wrong. I'm just wicked. Like, I, my flesh is weak. I just have no willpower. It's my issue. It's my problem. I need to have better control of my body. No, what do I do? It's her fault. She brought the cookies in. If she didn't bring the cookies in, I wouldn't have eaten them. It's the devil temptress that she brings these in. And so rather than taking on the responsibility in my flesh, I use my circumstances, my environment, my wife as a means to justify indulging in my flesh, in my sin. And many of us in this room, we have used our environment and our circumstances to indulge for reason and excuse to justify why you do what you do. And it's not because of what you grew up with. It's not because of how you lived. It's not because of what happened. It's because we are wicked in nature. David, when he was sinning against Bathsheba, he prayed to God. And in Psalms, he says, against you alone I have sinned, O God. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David said, it ain't Bathsheba's fault. You know, he could have said, man, if she would have put some clothes on, well, who bathed outside my window? I mean, modesty, come on. Like, of course, if my parents trained me and raised me to respect women better, it's their fault. Jesus, David says, look, I was a sinner at birth. He takes it a step further. He says, I was a sinful fetus. When I was conceived, I was wicked. I don't blame my circumstances. I don't blame Bathsheba. Because some of us in this room, we need to break the chain, y'all. We need to break the chain and stop using our circumstances as an excuse, our environment as an excuse, and start giving it to God and allowing him to heal the wounds, allowing him to heal our brokenness, allow him to regenerate us, allow him to, to actually change us. Your environment does not make you a better person. It does not improve the person. Only God can improve you. Only God can change you. And so what we see here is that this section is God vindicating his just judgment and his just wrath. He's saying there's no excuse. Even in the best environment, when given the opportunity, you will choose to walk away from me. And he's vindicating his just judgment. So right after that, right after they're gathered together, they're destroyed, we get to the last section in this verse and what happens in the millennial kingdom right before the new heaven and new earth. It is the great white throne judgment. Let's read this real quick and then we're done. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were open and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to the, their works by the things written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in them, and the death and Hades delivered up their dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found in the books of life was cast into the lake of fire. So everybody's alive at this point. 
unbelievers, believers, everybody from Adam to the last person born in the millennial kingdom, everybody is resurrected. We are all standing before the great white throne of judgment. We're standing before God. And it says he has books. He has books and he has a book. He has these books. And guys, here's the thing. Believers, unbelievers will not have a defense against this just judge. Listen to me, if you are a believer in, the, in Christ this morning or you're here this morning and God is pulling on you, listen, in Christ you will stand before God and he will say not guilty. He will say you are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because of the Lamb's book of life. Your name is written in this book of life in Christ, not because of your deeds, not because of your efforts. It's also called the Lamb's book. It's called the book of the Lamb that was slain. Your name is in here because of the blood that covers you. And Jesus is going to read your name. Guys, imagine this scene. Talk about motivation. Imagine God standing up there with the book of life and saying, Sam Sinyard, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now come into the kingdom that I prepared for you from the beginning of the age. Megan Neal, well done, my good and faithful servant. Imagine just being standing up there and God is reading your name from the Lamb's book of life. What other motivation do we need to live for Christ, to strive for Christ, to be ready as the bride of Christ than to imagine that moment when Jesus is reading your name from the Lamb's book of life? And then he says there are other books. And these are the books of records. The books of deeds. In fact, Ecclesiastes says every deed that every person has committed, both good and bad, are kept, God knows, and will be judged. Now listen, Everything you've said, everything you've done, everything you've thought is in the book of records. But hear me, we do not serve Allah. We do not serve, uh, we're not uh, Muslims. We do not believe, because the Bible does not teach, that God will stand up there and look at your records and say, your good works outweigh your bad works, enter into paradise. Those book of records, what they are, are a statement of faith. They are a declaration that in your life you have put your, you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Basically, for the believer, the book of records is a declaration that why, and, and, and a proclamation of why your name is in the book of life. That's one reason. If it wasn't so, then Jesus would have told the person on the, on the, the tree who had 99.9% of evil works on the cross. But he said, today, because the 0.1%, you put your faith in me, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Guys, this is a beautiful statement. But I do believe, for a believer, these books of records will not be a point of judgment, but they'll be a point of sorrow. Listen to me. I, I see this scene, and this is, once again, speculation, but listen, just the way the Bible describes this, it's going to be like the end of Schindler's List. Have you all ever seen Schindler's List? powerful movie. I encourage you to watch it with tears and extra four hours of your life. And just be aware, no kids in the room. It's about the Holocaust and it's very, very intense. Schindler was a wealthy man and he spent his wealth and his material possessions to try to buy as many Jews out of the Holocaust, out of concentration camps as he can to save them. 
to rescue them. He spends his whole time doing this through the, through the, 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 the through Nazi Germany. He spends his whole time through World War III or two doing this. In the very end of the movie, there is this scene where they give uh, Schindler this present. I can't remember if it's a watch or a ring. Is it a watch? They give him a watch, and he looks at this watch. They're celebrating the life of Schindler. Everybody's, all the Jews he saved, everybody's well, celebrating him. And he looks at the watch, and he says, five Jews. This could have bought five Jews. He goes to his car, and he says, ten Jews. This could have bought ten Jews. I could have spent the money. I could have sold that. He just walks around frantically just looking at things. That could have bought two Jews, one Jew, six Jews, ten Jews. And he's just screaming. He says, I could have done more. I could have done more. I could have done more. I believe that we're going to look at the book of deeds and everything that God has given you, your talent, your resources, your money, your environment, your family, your house, your car, everything that God has given you, and we're going to look at it and say, I couldn't, if I would have just not spent my money here and put it here, if I didn't have to buy the nice thing, I could have bought the crappy beater truck, and I could have been in here and helped this person, if I would have just told this person that Jesus loves them just one more time, I could have done more. We're going to look at the book of records, not as a point of judgment, but as a point of sorrow to know that we could have done something more. We could have said this, that one more thing to that person. I could have just walked down the street. I could have gone on that prayer walk. I could have talked to that person. I could have said that to that person. I could have spent the money here. I could have done more. Because in the next scene, those who are not found in the book of life. It says that these books of deeds become a, a means of judgment because their name is not written and covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. That They are going to have a book of deeds and they're going to read everything that you've done. All the wickedness, all the rebellion, all the sin that we all have in our lives. But those of us in the blood of Jesus Christ, we are in the book of life because of Jesus Christ. Not because of your deeds, but in those deeds. The same deeds that we have committed, they are going to have committed. They're going to be reading it. And rather than seeing their blood of Jesus Christ written over them, they become a point of judgment. The Bible says that you cannot, command, you cannot condemn somebody or judge somebody unless on the count of two to three witnesses. Right here, as they're reading the deeds of every person, everybody who rebelled against Jesus Christ, there will be three witnesses present that says, yes, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we'll affirm that, yes, this is true. And it says that everything, both the place of torments, the place of paradise, the place of Tartars. All the people who were in Hades. Everybody that was brought up, that came out. Everybody will be thrown into the lake of fire. No more chances. No more times of repentance. No more opportunities. For all of eternity. Because I, I've said this before in this sermon series. This has been an emotional series for me. Because these, this is not theology to me. 
This is not doctrine to me. These are people I love. These are people I care about. These are people that I, I live next to. These are family members, and this, this shouldn't be just doctrine. This should motivate us. This should, no greater scene than the great white throne of judgment. Guys, could you imagine this scene? Let that motivate you and propel you to, to, to live for Christ boldly. And who cares? But I don't want to live because they're going to make fun of me. They're going to be toy guys. Ah. Let me just say this, okay? Here comes a tangent. Let me do this illustration. I've seen this illustration before, but we have two planes. We're going to L.A. tomorrow, okay? Not, not really, but I wish we would. Actually, I don't, no. Uh, but we're going to L.A. tomorrow. Now we have two planes. The first plane, you get to ride in first class. You get every drink, everything you want to drink, whether it's alcohol, beverage, non-alcoholic beverage, anything you want to drink. Then you also have three-course meal. You have reclining seat. AC is pumping. It's nice. You have a TV screen. You have a 30-inch TV screen in the, in, in the co like right in front of your, your, your seat. 30 inches on a plane. You know you get like four, okay? The problem is you're going to love your ride, but the landing gear is messed up. So when you get there, you will crash, and you will die. But you'll have a good time. You have a good trip. It's going to be comfortable. You'll get steak or... You get the set plan B, plane B, and you get a seat in coach next to two big people who smell, haven't bathed in three days. No AC, nothing's working, no TV. In fact, behind you, there's a kid kicking your seat and screaming the whole trip. No food. They get you stale crackers just to hold you over. No peanuts. Stale crackers. A little cup of water that's one sip and then done, and you got to refill it every three, you know. Come on, what? Yeah, I hate that. I'm like, just give me a bottle. Come on. I know you got 20 back there. Um, but the landing gear's fine. Which plane do you take? There's so many Christians, we're choosing plane A. We're not thinking about the future. You see, the Charlie church was motivated by what's to come, not what's happening here. Paul says, keep your eyes on what's eternal, because what is here is temporary. But yet we are so focused on more comfort, more safety. I don't want to go teach the gospel because people might make fun of me. Who cares? They're going to hell. I don't want to preach the gospel because people won't think I'm dumb. I, I won't, people won't think I'm cool. I don't want to tell my friends that I love because they, they're not believers. I don't want to make myself look uncool. Guys, they are going to hell. It doesn't matter. We need to get over this. We need to be motivated by eternal things and chase after righteousness. Because every one of us will come to the end and we will have joy in Christ, but also we will have sorrow in what we could have done because we could have done more. So that's the millennial kingdom, all right? When Christ returns, 
It's going to be amazing. It's going to be glorious. He's going to set up his kingdom. But in the end, guys, this should motivate us. It should motivate us. So I, I challenge you tonight, come to the prayer walk. It's not just praying for people, but we get the opportunity to see people and communicate with people and talk with people and love on people and share the gospel. So let's pray. Father, I thank you. God, I pray that you give us an eternal mindset. I pray that you give us an eternal mindset that sees you clearly, that is not consumed with what's going on around me, our environment, our circumstances, but Father, we're motivated by what is to come. For everybody in this room that's a believer, Father, we, we're not motivated by fear because of the blood of the Lamb. We thank you. We praise you for that. But God, let us not be content or complacent in that, ever. Let us be motivated in that, that because while we were saved by faith, we were saved for good works. We were saved for advancing the kingdom. We were saved for telling people about the love of Jesus Christ that we have received. Give us boldness. Give us clarity of mind. Give us the proper perspective. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. It's in your name we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.